Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy, and this is our eighth episode covering the saga of Ail Skatlagrimson. Eight episodes. Amazing. So how are we doing with our plan of being done with this saga by the end of summer? Uh, well, I mean, you're the one that thought that would happen. Uh, <laughs> I'll say pretty well, actually. Really? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always summer somewhere. You just gotta, you know, if we wait <laughs> long not, enough into winter. That's not true. That's not how this works. Oh, uh, well, also, you know what sometimes I mean. it's spring and fall. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, it's just going to have to take as long as it takes. And mm-hmm. I'd say we're doing pretty well. We're into our fifth month on Ale Saga, but we're also more than halfway through the saga, at least chapter wise. And we're probably just about halfway in terms of the number of episodes we're devoting to the saga. So we're going to end up with something like 13 or 14 episodes on this one before we're done. Uh, it's maybe 13, 14, 20, 50, whatever. <laughs> whatever it takes, I says. Okay. I know it's a long journey, but we need some kind of a milestone to mark our progress. Uh, shouldn't we be getting yeah. on toward another narrative climax right about now? It's funny you should mention that because that's <laughs> exactly what we're talking about today. Uh-huh. But first, we should explain what's been going on in the lives of Ail and Thoral for those who uh, maybe don't remember what's happened in the previous right. episodes. Well, it's been a while. Excellent. Let's keep it short and sweet. That's our forte. Last time on Ale Saga. Ale and Thorolf Scotlagrimson began a lucrative trading season by marauding along the Corland coast. An unguarded moment on the land raid, however, led to Ale and his men being caught with their hands in the cookie jar. Captured while robbing a farmhouse, Ale and his men are imprisoned by the farmer's son, who plans to torture the Vikings. Ale slips the bonds of his captors and escapes with his men, but not before burning the farm and its residents into ash. The Skatlagrimsons continued their piratical ways in Denmark and Sweden for a time before making their way to Norway, where they stayed with Earl Thorir, the uncle of Thorolf's wife Asgert. She's also Thorolf's foster sister. And also his wife. (laughs) But Thorir isn't exactly over the moon to see his nephew-in-law. He knows that King Eric and Queen Gunild are still stewing with fury over Ael's deadly treatment of their follower Atloy Bard. The Queen sent her brothers, Avon the Braggart and Alf Asman, to a public gathering to see whether they can punch the Scott the Grimson's tickets to Valhalla. But Earl Thorir is a crafty host. He leaves Ael safely at home with Thorir's son Arendjorn and keeps Thorolf stuck to his side like peanut butter. <laughs> the frustrated royal assassins then turn their weapons on two of Ail and Thorolf's close friends, Thorfinn the Strong and Thorvald the Overbear. <laughs> You're enjoying peanut butter, is that the idea? That's correct. <laughs> and those are some interesting names. Indeed. The four men end up in a drinking contest one night, and a fight breaks out. Avon Braggart, 86, is Thorvald the Overbearing with a single sword thrust, shocking everyone present. The killing happened to be on sacred ground, you see. And so Avond is banished for his sacrilege. Not content with that, Ail later chases Avond's ships, capturing two of them and forcing the Queen's brother to abandon ship and swim for his life. So, we've had a lot of new folks introduced in the last couple of episodes, and that was no exception. Yeah, most of these people aren't going to be hugely important to the story going forward, with the exception no. of two in particular. Uh, Thorolf's wife, Asgard, and her cousin, Arnbjorn Thorison. Yeah, it's important to keep those two in mind, but we're not going to be seeing them in this episode. 
This time, we're focused on Ale and Thorolf's involvement with the war in Britain in the 930s. Right, but I think, I mean, a lot of scholarship builds around Ale as an antisocial misanthrope. And it's important to pay attention to this because fundamentally, Ale's just really fundamentally difficult as a person. Uh, He's not normate in almost any way, and it makes his interactions with others fraught and confused. And dangerous. I mean, Mm. Ale's not just a difficult person. He's also got a murderous temper and an almost supernatural ability to cause damage. (laughs) No, absolutely. Uh, But he has a small group of people who can work with his behavior and with his physical presence. Uh, And when he finds those people, he's fiercely dedicated to them. Yeah, his brother Thorolf obviously falls into that category. Right, exactly. And I would say Asgard and Erenbjorn are going to be hugely important to Ail's life as well. Right, and then we have to add Ail's children, or at least some of his children. We haven't met them yet, obviously, but they're going to show up pretty soon. And they're also part of that small group that Ail treats almost as a part of himself. Right. And not to spoil anything, but Ail's going to outlive some of these people. And so we really get to see how grief affects Ail. Because he does live with his emotions much closer to the surface than most saga figures. And when he cares about someone, he cares totally. Yeah. You're getting soft on Ale, aren't you? I'm fascinated by him. I don't think he's a simple figure to talk about. I I can say that he's got this capacity to care about people in his life. But but he's also remarkably callous about other people's lives and loves. He's a violent person with a self-control problem who also writes poetry, experiences heartache, acts with blind selfishness, and... Sometimes with high-minded altruism, almost at random. But he's, mm-hmm. he's impossible to pin down. Which makes him such a fascinating figure for study, right? Yep. And that's yep. why, maybe why so much of the scholarship around this saga is built around psychological studies of Ale. Yep, absolutely. And in this next section of the saga, we're going to see Ale and Thorolf's story mixed with a huge historical moment. And how the brothers respond to the opportunity. Oh, I can't top that for a lead-in. Do your magic. In this episode, we follow Thorolf and Eil as they travel to the distant shores of Anglo-Saxon England, where they enter the service of King Athelstan, the grandson of Alfred the Great, with 300 of their own men. Meanwhile, a threat grows in the north. King Olaf the Red, a descendant of Ragnar Lothbrok himself, has gathered a great army, a combined force of Scots, Danes, Irish Norwegians, and Welsh, challenge their Anglo-Saxon overlords and reclaim ancestral lands and their independence. Olaf's army begins by raiding and plundering throughout Northumbria, forcing Athelstan's earls of York, Godric and Alfgeir, to organize a hasty defense. Olaf's army quickly dispatches Earl Godric and forces Earl Alfgeir into a panicked flight south to Mercia. There he informs King Athelstan and his council of the pending threat. Realizing the fate of his kingdom and the future of England is at stake, Athelstan challenges Olaf to a battle at Wen Heath in one week's time. Before flying south to muster reinforcements, Athelstan appoints his best men to lead each division in the Anglo-Saxon army. Having already made a good impression on the wise king, Thorolf and Eil Skothagrimson are then given command of the Viking division of Athelstan's army. And so the stage is set. The two brothers will play an important role in this, the greatest battle to be fought on English soil since the Anglo-Saxons had come from the east to defend the Britons. Will King Athelstan make it back to the battlefield in time with reinforcements from the south? Will Earl Alfgeir acquit himself of his previous retreat by making a bold stand at Wenheath? 
and will Thorolf and Eil prove their mettle in the battle to end all battles? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Eil Saga, chapters 50 to 55. I'm excited about this one. Well, it's a big deal. I mean, we're in Britain for the Battle of Brunnenburg. This is our episode devoted to the pivotal part Ale and Thorolf Scott the Grimson play in the fate of England. I, well, okay. The part they play according to an Icelandic saga. And, yes. and at, at that, a saga written something like 300 years after the actual battle. Well, yes, obviously, there's a caveat there, but the <laughs> historical moment itself is important, sure. and it's the point. Uh, I th- we said last time, at least I think we did, that we need to go yeah, and— Yeah, you, you need to go back and listen to the episodes before you say things like that. No, 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 stop. This is this is good pedagogy right here. I'm linking the present topic to overarching themes. Right? I'm reminding everyone of what we discussed last time. If we discussed it last time. Yes, thank you. Uh, the point is that our <laughs> author is rearranging historical events— or even making yes. up entire accounts of English history, just so that he can have the Scotland Grimsons at the heart of what history remembered as a defining moment in English history. Yeah, and Brunnenberg is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's recounted in chronicles, sagas, poetry, you name it. And we have sources from both the English and Scandinavian worlds, and the Welsh and the Scots, yep. because it's a battle that changes the political fortunes of the entire north of Europe. Right, which is why we're going to focus on Ale and Thorolf's story in this episode, and save all that discussion of the battle's larger significance for a special episode. In fact, a saga brief that we'll be releasing a couple of weeks after this one goes up. That's right. All right. Uh, at some point, we need to stop all this preluding and get on to the uh, regular looting. And with that, we're off to Britain. Part 23, Dramatis Personae. This section of the saga opens with a brief review of Anglo-Saxon history and King Athelstan's family. Mm -hmm. We're told, In the days of King Harold Fairhair, Alfred the Great reigned over England, the first of his kinsmen to be sole ruler there. Hey, I've heard of him. Me too. Actually, most of my dissertation is about his uh, educational reform program. Oh, you're a fan, eh? Well, I I think he's great. Oh, see? Uh Uh, I get it. You're not the only one. Everybody loves Alfred the Great. Well, and how could you not? Mm-hmm. Uh, incidentally, John, did you uh, did you notice that the saga actually calls him Alfred the Great? Oh, you're right. Does it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I looked it up in uh, the the mm-hmm. uh, Icelandic just to make sure. It says uh, it calls him Elfrather Inriki. That's Alfred the Powerful, the Mighty, or Great. See, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of our listeners, that detail isn't terribly significant, I think. After all, it's the epithet that Alfred is known by. True, but we aren't quite sure when people started referring to him as the Great. Right, and we know it wasn't during the Anglo-Saxon period, right? Right. In fact, I think popular tradition holds that he was given the epithet the Great, like, much, much later. Uh, doesn't mm-hmm. Barbara York or somebody say that it was actually Victorians romanticizing the Anglo-Saxon king? Uh, right, this is the king who helps lay the foundations for England, uh, and so it's yeah, they got Victorians kind of building that that myth of Britain. Exactly, they got very worked up about him. Yeah, um, and she's not the only one to think that. Uh, it, or is, so it is Barbara that, York. But, uh, yeah, Barbara York does say that. Yeah. Uh, I think Justin Pollard also, and and several mm-hmm. others. It's kind of like the standing tradition of at least into the 1980s. That's what right, kind of people right. thought. But uh, of course, they're all mistaken. 
<laughs> Alfred is frequently referred to as Enrique in medieval Icelandic mm-hmm. sources. Uh, in addition to this mm-hmm. brief reference in Eil Saga, you'll find Elfraðr Enrique in the early 13th century Lanama book as well. Right. And we've already established that's a likely source for the Eil Saga author. Yeah. Matthew Paris added a marginal note to his Liber Adita Mentorum in which he identifies Alfred as Rex Alfredus Magnus. Oh, interesting. So are there uh-huh. any, there aren't any earlier references to Alfred the Great? Uh, not that I or or anyone else has found, at least to my knowledge. But but I do find it interesting that by the early 13th century, with mm-hmm. the Lanama bulk reference possibly being a little bit earlier than the one by Matthew Paris, Alfred has come to be known as the Great in both English and Scandinavian sources. Yeah, and that suggests a popular movement is underway, right? Raising up Alfred as the heroic founder of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that maybe that's picking up steam sometime in the late 12th, early 13th century. Yeah, I think so. I think it absolutely is. Um, there's a lot of interesting Anglo-Saxon stuff going on in England yeah, around yeah. the 12th century. Um, so it makes some sense. Right. Um, what's really interesting for me, and the reason I'm even kind of delaying on this, is <laughs> is that you know people will talk about the Matthew Parrish reference, but I don't see a lot of references to the Scandinavian sources right. referring to him as Enrique or the Great in the 13th century. So it's, I think, worth noting. Uh, but... Right, unless this you're working episode, in both fields, it's not really something that you would Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless you're working in both as a, fields, as why would you notice? Right. Yeah. But uh, this episode, it's not really about Alfred. I just Yeah, uh, I was wondering if you were aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, aside from that one very quick reference to him in the first line of the chapter, he doesn't come up at all. No, no, he doesn't. But, you know, I, like I said, I thought it was both interesting and appropriate to start things off with a fun little digression, because that's what we do. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners are very grateful. Yeah, sorry about that. These little details always get me, so... Um, But, uh, yeah, we're not here to talk about Alfred the Great. This section is all about the historical background and dramatis personae of the Brunnenberg episode of Ale Saga. Brunnenberg, you say? Yes. And what's that? Oh, just a little battle that decided the shape of England. Okay. And who are the dramatis personae? Well, we've got a nice long list of them. We've got mm-hmm. King Athelstan, the grandson of Alfred Enrique. So he's 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 fighting in the corner for the Anglo-Saxons. That's correct. And then there's Olaf Guthrison. Ah, uh, yes, representing for the Irish Vikings. Yes, the Hiberno-Norse faction, absolutely. Mm. The saga doesn't mention King Constantine II of Scotland or or even the Welsh king Owen of Strathclyde. So so we won't be talking about them at all. Well, not exactly. They're at least important for historical context here, so we'll mm-hmm. touch on them a little. And for some reason, the saga replaces Owen of Strathclyde with mm-hmm. two brothers, Hring and Adils, as the rulers of Britain. Right, so the, the saga author isn't willing to distinguish between the northern Welsh kingdom of Strathclyde, or Cumbria, where King Owen reigned, and the rest of Welsh Britain. Yeah, it appears that way. But to be fair... All of Welsh Britain wanted to see the Anglo-Saxons defeated and run out of Britain anyway, so... Yeah, so it kind of works. It kind of does. Uh, then we've also got two earls, Alfgeir and Godric, who have been given the task of ruling the unruly territory of Northumbria in Athelstan's name. Oh, this should be easy. Uh-huh. So you just listed out, let me see, uh, eight people, some of yes. whom appear in the saga and some of whom don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might need a separate episode just to set up the background. <laughs> you want to do another saga brief? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot to cover here, but we can do it. You just have to believe, John. All right. I want to believe. Uh, let's start with Athelstan and the situation in Northumbria. Oh, sounds good. Let's do it. Oh, so you want me to talk about it. Uh, all right. Well, the saga keeps things general. 
but it more or less gets things right in terms of what the tension, I guess you call it, the tension that erupts once King Edward the Elder passes away. Yeah. Did you say, do I want you to cover it? You're an Anglo-Saxonist. Your PhD As are is you. Anglo- yeah, so why why wouldn't you be qualified to talk I, about this? I studied Anglo-Saxon hagiography. You dealt with Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> well, this You're is the Athelstan. king's guy. Uh, come on, you know you all about You want to talk about Brunenberg. saints? I'm right here for you. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Edward, King Edward the Elder, he is most famous for finishing what his father, Alfred the Great, had started. Mm-hmm. And much of that involved establishing West Saxon authority in Mercia and conquering the southern portions of the Danelaw. Right. And uh, so while Vikings still rule York during Edward's reign, the Danish Vikings hold over northern England had been growing weaker. Uh, by about 918 or thereabouts, the majority of Danes in York had submitted to Edward's sister, Athelflaed. The Lady of the Mercians. Yes, Athelflaed is an amazing woman and well worth a deep dive if you've got the time to look into her story. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but if you only have an hour or so to invest in Athelflaed, uh, you should probably listen to what Rex Factor's recent episode on her. Uh, they're doing a series on the consorts of the English kings and queens, and they just recently covered Athelflaed. Yeah, and they're doing a fantastic job with the Anglo-Saxon era this time around. Yes, Especially with uh, uh, talking about women in uh, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. era and queens in the Anglo-Saxon era. Yeah, really no, I'm, I'm, I'm theoretically a credentialed expert in the area, and I keep learning new things listening to these episodes. Hmm. I don't know if that's sad or good. I oh, mean, no, it's, it's good for it, them. Well, it speaks to, it speaks to the amount of time I did not spend studying the royals when I was doing Anglo-Saxon work. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I spent all my time with the royals, so right. I don't know as much about Cuthbert and the saints as you do. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. But well, yeah, no, when they, when they get around to covering the saints of Anglo-Saxon England, I'm sure that I'll be able to uh, look insouciantly down my nose at you the way you're doing at me right now. Uh, well, somehow I don't think Graham and Ali are going to be too excited about covering the saints of Anglo-Saxon England. <laughs> Nor would anyone. Oh. But the uh, the the episode on Athelflaed is definitely worth checking out. So I'm going to put a link to the Athelflaed episode in the show notes. It's a good idea. Yeah. Now, why might the Danes of York submit to Anglo-Saxon authority, you might ask? I might. Well. I didn't, but I might. <laughs> one might. That's just a setup. Well, <laughs> the Hiberno-Norse have made some impressive gains in Ireland since the days of Ivar the Boneless. Mm-hmm. Um, now his grandsons, and there are a lot of grandsons for Ivar, uh, they are making life rather difficult for the Danes of York. So the Danes of York can see the writing on the wall, and they're looking for protection from the Hiberno-Norse Vikings who are coming for York. Right, and the Norse do actually seize York not long after this. Yes. Yeah, in part due to the death of Athelflaed and the subsequent weakening of the Mercians. And King Edward took that as an opportunity to assert his own authority over Mercia, finally solidifying West Saxon dominance over southern England. So that leaves a necessary power vacuum that allows the Hibernianos to strike. Yes. Now, okay, we can go on and on about this fascinating part of history, but we do actually need to get into the reign of Athelstan and what's happening in this saga. The point here is that there's a lot of tension in Northumbria at the start of Athelstan's reign. Oh, absolutely. When Edward the Elder dies, he was the ruler of the Saxon and Anglian territories of the former Anglo-Saxon Heptarchy. He also ruled over the Welsh, who submitted to him after the Battle of Tamworth. Right, and in the north, the Hiberno-Norse descendants of Ivar the Boneless, or Ivar the Viking King of Dublin, uh, and whether those are the same individual or not has been a matter of debate among scholars, but... Uh, I think we're going to be treating them as probably the same uh, legend here. Yeah, we we talked um, about that in the Ivar the Boneless yep. uh, saga brief, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna stick to our guns on that one. Yeah. Uh, so this Ivar or the Ivars uh, ruled the Danes of Northumbria and York. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time of Edward's death, 
the Viking Sithric ruled in York, and his brother Guthfrith ruled in Dublin. And they are both the uh, they are both the grandsons of Ivar. That's correct. Uh, and a little further north, King Constantine II is ruling in Scotland. Now, while things seem to be firmly in the hand of the West Saxons, Edward's death in 924 invited everyone involved to reevaluate their loyalty to West Saxon authority. <laughs> and as you can imagine, you none make it of sound Saxons- so formal and. Yeah, right. Hmm, we're going to reevaluate. Yeah, we're going to we're going to send this to a committee and we're going to right, reconsider. Right. Yeah. A moot. Now, as you can imagine, none of the factions particularly relish the idea of being a dependent kingdom, especially right, to no, a, and, a West Saxon southern overlordship. Uh-huh. Uh, and and one who had a contested rule, right? Uh, Athelstan has exactly, to sort of yeah. earn his kingship. And he's well aware of the potential for the northern neighbors to turn on their Saxon overlords given the opportunity, mm. which is why he was so eager to secure the loyalty of the Hiberno-Norse, so eager that he gave his sister, Edgith, in marriage to Citric, the king of York, in 926. And that was a very good idea, and it would have worked beautifully if Citric had lived <laughs> to honor his allegiance to Athelstan's family. Unfortunately, he died in 927, a year after the marriage. Mm-hmm. So as soon as Sigtric's brother, Guthrith, gets word of Sigtric's death in Dublin, he immediately prepares to cross the sea to secure York from any potential attackers. Right, which is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Athelstan already thought of that. Athelstan's a crafty one. Uh, yeah. He rushes into York and claims it for the Anglo-Saxons, restoring English authority in York for the first time in generations, really. Yeah. Um, more important, perhaps, it's the first time a southern king had ever ruled in York. Uh, remember that before the Vikings came along, the Anglo-Saxons were a heptarchy, seven different kingdoms. And so Wessex is as much a foreign uh, ruler as the Hiberno-Norse would be yeah, from the Northumbrian perspective. right? So this, this rubs people in Northumbria the wrong way, uh, both sort of Vikings and Anglo-Saxon Northumbrians. Yeah. So this bold act of Athelstan sets everything in motion. Athelstan now rules the Saxon, Angle, and Northumbrian territories, essentially all of what we now consider modern-day England. Now that he's asserted his claim to the north, the West Saxons are sharing a border with both the Scots in the north and the Welsh of Strathclyde and Cumbria uh, off to the west. As you imagine, they aren't real pleased by this shift in the balance of power. Absolutely not. And to highlight this shift in power, Athelstan marches his troops further north into Scotland as a show of power. There's no record of any fighting, but it's clear that Athelstan wanted to show King Constantine what he was up against. This march, or the battles that may have been fought but not recorded, definitely made a strong impression on both the Scots and the Welsh because they both submitted to Athelstan's authority rather than face him in battle. Right. And to secure their loyalty, uh, Athelstan requires the Scottish king, Constantine, the Welsh king of Strathclyde, Owen, and several other Welsh sub-kings not only swear oaths of allegiance, but actually physically spend time at Athelstan's court. Right. Exactly where he can see them. Yeah, exactly. Well, you, you wouldn't want them hanging out at home, maybe gathering an army in their spare time, would you? Of course not. <laughs> oh, and, and things seemed fine and dandy for several years. Until 934, when King Constantine of Scotland was uh, hanging out back at home and suddenly breaks his treaty with the Anglo-Saxons. That's why you don't go home. Yes, exactly. Now, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle reports that Athelstan went into Scotland with both land forces and naval forces and ravaged much of Scotland. Much of it. Yes. Uh, So, the accessible bits. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> Constantine is forced to submit once more, and this time he has to provide his son as a hostage against further Scottish disobedience. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Viking Dublin, Guthrith has died and his son Anlaf, or Olaf, has risen to claim his father's title and lands. Mm -hmm. Olaf acted quickly to secure Dublin from, from all the potential enemies that might be out there, defeating several neighboring kingdoms and becoming the sole ruler of the Hiberno-Norse territories in Ireland. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite similar to what Athelstan accomplished in England. Exactly. Now, as far as Olaf was concerned, the Irish territories were lovely, but there were other family lands to be claimed across <laughs> the sea in England. More Say profitable lands. York, for example. Yes, York. Olaf's uncle, Sigtrick, had ruled York and Northumbria until his death. And before Guthrith, Olaf's father, could get to York and claim his inheritance, Athelstan had rushed in and stolen the city from them. Now, with the full strength of the Hiberno-Norse armies in the British Isles, Olaf wanted to reclaim what was rightfully his. Now, despite all of that, the Anglo-Saxon forces still vastly outnumber the Hiberno-Norse. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, fortunately for Olaf, just about everybody in Wales and Northumbria and Scotland has some reason or another for wanting revenge against the Anglo-Saxons at this point. Absolutely. And this leads us to the year 937 and the start of chapter 50 of Ailsaga, where we're told... After Athelstan's succession, some of the noblemen who had lost their realms to his family started making war upon him, seizing the opportunity to claim them back when a young king was on the throne. These were the British, Scots, and Irish. But King Athelstan mustered an army and paid anyone who wanted to enter his service, English and foreign alike. Say Thorolf and Ale, for example. Uh, who? Who's that? What? Thorolf and Ale. You remember them, don't you? Thorolf and Ale. Hmm. Yes. Do they ring I a bell at so. all? Yeah, go I back and listen to the summary, uh, just in case you don't. Uh, uh, yes. Thorolf Those and guys. Ale, Scott Grimson, our actual protagonists, hmm. were looking for a good place to hide from King Eric and Queen Gunild's wrath back in Norway after humiliating Gunild's brother, Avon the Braggart. That's right. I See, I knew their names sounded familiar. Yes. Uh, they, they, the brothers have heard about Athelstan's call for good soldiers to serve in his army, and the promise of the spoils of war draw them in. King Athelstan welcomes the two Icelanders warmly, makes them take the sign of the cross so that they can do business, uh, which, and, which is interesting, and we can talk about that some other time, uh, and then puts them in positions of authority in his army. Well, that was easy. Remarkably easy. I mean... They're, all of a sudden, they're officers in Athelstan's army. I wonder, what did they put on their resumes to get those positions so quickly? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Sackers of Lund, Pirates of the Coast, Holds Alcohol Better Than Other Men, Willing <laughs> to Be Converted. <laughs> <laughs> well, not converted, but taking the sign of the cross. Not well, exactly the same thing, but... Uh, functionally the same. Now, I would point out that they have uh, they have Thorolf with them. Mm -hmm. He's got a way with royalty, right? He sure, probably absolutely. just winks... Smooth talks his way into Adelstan's good graces, and boom, they're, they're officers. Right, smiles in the sunlight, and the, the right. glint off of his white teeth blinds the king. And his uh, blonde now, hair. Right, exactly, waving in the breeze. Uh, now, so the saga tells us that Athelstan had put two earls in charge of Northumbria. Their names are Alfgir and Godric. They're tasked with governing, collecting tributes, and defending the territory against invading Scots, against the Norwegians from Ireland... Uh, and against the Danes. 
There's no mention of Alfgar and Godric in the source material, by the way, so um, we we have to take the saga's word for it. But it makes sense that Athelstan would have earls ruling in his name, whoever they are. Yeah, that's right. And we're also told that the two brothers, Hring and Adils, were put in charge of the Welsh territories. Mm-hmm. These two brothers were known as brave warriors, uh, a little bit on in their years, uh, but they fought always in Athelstan's vanguard. So they're some of the best warriors that uh, are available. Mm-hmm. And just in case the saga audience hadn't figured it out yet, we're reminded that Athelstan's family had deprived all of these people of their kingdoms. Right. And so all of this goes to set up the Battle of Brunenburg, which is the greatest battle in English history up to this point. Yeah, there's so much to say about the Battle of Brunenburg that uh, we have a fun little saga brief prepared for you on the subject. And uh, we've got a couple of very special guests coming in to help us talk about the battle and its context and the aftermath. And uh, maybe we'll reveal the the uh, the special guests as a treat for anyone who makes it to the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you can stay awake that long, you'll find out who the guests are. Now, it's a great episode, and it should hopefully provide a variety of perspectives to help fill in some of the gaps that we're going to leave here. Uh, now, for now, we're just going to say that Athelstan is preparing to face uh, a massive force, a combined force of the Hiberno-Norse, led by Olaf uh, Guthrison, uh, the Scots of Constantine II, the Welsh of Owen of Strathclyde, among many other Welsh kings. Now, again, mm-hmm. this saga is going to eliminate uh, Constantine and Owen and replace them with the Earls, Hring, and Adils. Right. Uh, but the the scale of the army is still the same. This battle will decide the future of England. Yeah, it's a big deal. If Athelstan loses, West Saxon control of England's northern territories would collapse. The Vikings would reclaim York and reestablish the important Dublin-York link, significantly enhancing Viking influence in the region. Mm-hmm. Right, they would probably use that Dublin-York connection to press further into Northumbria, regain control of the Dane law. Maybe push the Anglo-Saxons all the way back to where they were at the end of Alfred's reign. Yeah, quite likely. And Scotland would have gained a degree of independence using Viking York as a strong buffer between themselves and the Anglo-Saxons. And the Welsh, mm-hmm. well, the Welsh, they would have happily taken advantage of any Anglo-Saxon weakness to reclaim any territories they could. They right. seem to think that the whole land of Britain is theirs. Crazy. <laughs> but possibly because of history. Uh, uh. But if, uh, if Athelstan could somehow win this battle... He'd eliminate several rivals for control of Northumbria all at one stroke yeah. uh, and secure West Saxon dominance throughout Britain. Yes, and so the stage is dramatically set for us. There's a lot riding on this battle. There is, uh, and we're about to get a front row seat for all the action because according to this saga, Ail and Thoralf are going to play a major role in the outcome of this decisive battle. Hmm, how exciting. Part 24. A place called Brunenburg. <laughs> I love that. So, incidentally, John, part yeah. 24, just, I want you to throw out a guess here. Yeah. How many parts do you think there will be to this saga? <laughs> uh, 46. <laughs> 46. That's my guess. You're just doubling it up. That's my guess. I'm going to guess. I'm almost doubling it up. I'm going to guess 62. No way. No way. You say if we're, no if way, we're Price is writing this, I'm going to be right. There's no way we're getting to 62. Oh, because I went over? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, we'll let the listeners Might be judge 61, but I'll still win. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So go ahead. So, What's going on? Uh, this, well, so Olaf the Red and his army are on the march into England. Uh, Olaf's first stop is in Northumbria, where he starts a plundering and burning campaign. 
Uh, oh, that's convenient. Right. And so Godric and Elfgear, the earls that we mentioned who were put in charge of the north by Athelstan, muster a local force to counterattack. Good for them. That's right. The two sides clash, but the battle quickly turns into a rout for the Scots. Uh, Godric is killed on the field. Alfgear and the majority of the army are run off the field. And just like that, Olaf has conquered Northumbria. Well, that was quick. Yeah, and I didn't skip anything. Uh, This entire part of the story is told in a single paragraph. Well, I mean, this is really just the prelude to the major battle to come, right? I mean, most historical sources don't even reference this first battle or any kind of skirmishes that lead up to the Battle of Brunenburg. Uh, And the point seems to be to just establish the threat posed by the Scots, uh, the Viking army. Yeah, no, this this battle between the Northern Earls and Olaf's advance force has essentially no corroboration outside of the saga. Mm -hmm. Uh, The point seems to be to establish the nature and strength of the alliance that Olaf and Constantine have made. Right, that he's he's that Olaf is coming in from the north. Um, yeah, and it makes sense because I mean, Athelstan has to be responding to something, right? So right. something has to be happening in the north to draw Athelstan up there. Right, uh, but a lot of other sources say that Constantine is the major aggressor from the north, and that Olaf is coming in from the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this saga, Olaf is the threat, and so he's coming in from the north. Uh, right. We should be clear: this isn't just a slap together alliance of these two groups. Right. The Hiberno-Norse cohabitation in the north is its own entity in this period. Uh, we mentioned during Flow Mana Saga that that story of the Hiberno-Norse regions will be worth its own saga brief. But we're not going to do that, right? <laughs> On account of having yeah, to I, get through this saga right now. I we've know, got the Ale, I know. I'm just saying. And we've got, yeah. we've got the Gretir saga. I understand. The Beowulf thing I understand. to do and the drinking thing to I do. I know. And- I'm just saying it's important not to lose sight of the fact that in, in 937, <laughs> I think this is something that when you study history, it's all too easy to do. In 937, right. it wasn't at all clear that the Anglo-Saxons would retain control of the island. Right? No, definitely not. This other world existed on the island as well. And that had its own lineages and its own claims to historical significance. Sure, which is why this is such a fascinating moment. Yeah. Uh, and the combined forces of Olaf and Constantine II of Scotland are really putting the outcome in doubt here. Once Olaf wipes out the Northumbrian resistance to his advance, that combination is starting to look unbeatable. And when that happens, some earls are going to start seriously considering where their loyalties ought to lie. <laughs> That's a question everyone has to ask themselves at this point. Uh, yeah. Neutrality is probably not an option in a war for control of the island. And if you back the wrong Feldolf side, well, <laughs> uh, if you back the wrong side, you're going to be in serious trouble, even if you survive the fight. Yeah. Uh, so right now, Athelstan's lost one earl and most of his northern support. He hasn't shown himself able to stop the Hiberno-Norse from attacking, and he's yet to face the combined force of Constantine and Olaf the Red. You can see why confidence in the south might not be running high. Hmm. Yeah. And all that might explain, and all that might explain why a number of powerful landowners switch sides right now. In particular. The other two northern earls, the brothers Adils and Hring, who are in charge of the Welsh or the, mm-hmm. the British, uh, they shift their allegiances suddenly to Olaf and become a central unit in the northern army. Right. And as we go forward, uh, the men who follow Adils and Hring are variously described as Welsh, Northumbrian, and Scots, uh, because yeah. the saga is just not that interested in differentiating among the different groups. Uh, right. So just be 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 assured that they're the same earls no matter who is following them. Um, but you understand why Athelstan has to be feeling a bit desperate at this point. 
Well, I mean, he's got to be worried enough that he calls an emergency meeting of his military commanders. And the commanders aren't thrilled about what happened in the north, and their first act is to demand that Alfgir, the survivor of the battle with Olaf, be demoted from his status as Earl. Okay. Rip the <laughs> rip the bars right off right. his sleeves. I mean, it seems a little petty when there's an invasion to deal with, but okay. Well, you don't want him in charge anymore. I think that's the, well, the main point there. That's probably a good the idea. Second decision, the second decision is that Athelstan should retreat into the south and then move north again once he's gathered a sufficient force. All right. And then the third decision is that the Viking mercenaries who've gathered on Athelstan's side, who are never mentioned in the sources, <laughs> should be organized into their own force, with Eil and Thorolf leading them. Mm-hmm. Convenient. Yes. <laughs> and Athelstan will command the English army with various men leading the different divisions. Right. So Eil and Thorolf are given a kind of strike force to command? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Uh, the text seems a little confused about how big their force is. Uh, I know that they came into Athelstan's army. It says they came into Athelstan's army with 300 of their own men. Um, so you imagine right. those 300 men plus whatever Athelstan's willing to right. throw at them. But uh, Whether they're whatever just in charge of all the mercenaries or what. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but it's it's their army. They're allowed mm-hmm. to deal with it uh, as they want. And when Ale returns to the Viking encampment, he calls the leaders together and speaks a verse. Olaf turned one earl in flight in a sharp encounter, and felled another. I've heard this warrior is hard to face. Galdrick went far astray on his path through the battlefield. The scourge of the English subdues half of Alfgear's realm. I mean... It's not super inspirational, is it? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a certain ironic detachment at work there. It's true. <laughs> uh, Ale, I think, clearly shares the English commander's low opinion of uh, Godric and Alfgar's performance. <laughs> yeah. A line like, Godric went far astray on his path through the battlefield is uh, it's definitely offering a critique. Right. But, but separating the Viking mercenaries into their own unit under the command of Icelanders, this is a strange bit of strategy. It is, but Why? Well, for one thing, we've already seen in this version of the story of Brunenburg that the English army is not exactly world class. <laughs> the Vikings are going to be shown off as the elite fighting force of the field. And actually, as I'm saying this, I'm answering my own question. <laughs> yeah, I think you are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Vikings are great. Right. We also need the Scott Grimsons to be showcased. So they're placed yeah. in the field so as to show them off to best advantage. Right. Mm-hmm. Even if it wouldn't make sense tactically. Right, they're going to be the ones who are on the side well, of the field. Especially if, if there's already yep. a growing problem with desertion and turncoats. These are oh, mercenaries. Yep. There's no reason to trust them to remain loyal, especially in a tough <laughs> fight. That's okay. kind of the problem with mercenaries. Right. I think we can have a whole different conversation about whether it's tactically more sound to have your, have your least trusted troops in one big group by themselves or scattered throughout your army. But uh, I don't think it's. I mean, it's it's not really a strategy at all, is it? I mean, this is a yeah. this is an author bending the narrative to its breaking point in order to place his protagonists at the center of the action. Well, sure, if you want to get all bookish about it, but uh, <laughs> we talked last time about the, the anachronistic nature of the saga. There are events from all over the 10th century happening in an order that serves the narrative rather than the historical record. Yeah, and this is more of the same, but it's more fun to argue about it as a military decision. Okay, so what do we want to do So then? you want to embrace the reality of the narrative, John. Uh-huh. 
willing suspension of disbelief and all that jazz, that's going to help you. No, one of us has to be the jaundiced eyed historicist. Jaundiced. (laughs) All right, carry on. You jaundiced. Very well, I shall. Uh, So, Ail and Thorolf send a messenger to King Olaf. This is Olaf the Red. Yeah. The leader of the enemy army. Well, a leader of the enemy army, but yes. Yeah. Don't worry, this isn't a treason situation. This is a challenge. The message is essentially this. King Athelstan challenges you to a battle in one week's time at Wenheath. The winner gets the island. Uh, Wenheath? Don't you mean Brunenberg? Yeah, I mean, those two things are... Uh, kind of the same depending on which source you're reading sure uh, different are. sources call the battlefield uh, Wenheath or Vendun or Vinhaver or Brunenburra or Brunewerk uh, I could keep going <laughs> yeah yeah uh, keep but going yeah pretty there. much no this is a winner take all one slammer for the whole pog stack all right I'm gonna ignore your sad attempt to make pogs relevant again <laughs> although they were popular in my youth uh, I was trying to connect like, with the youth of today. The Are youth they not today a thing have anymore? no idea what a pog is. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Look, it was that or marbles. Uh, marbles. But, uh, sh- sure, go ahead. Uh, okay, this, Paul Ingalls. So this is a delaying tactic. <laughs> well, yes, that's what I was going to say. No, no, I was talking about calling out my pog reference. But, but go on. No. Yes, this in the narrative is a delaying tactic. It is a delaying tactic. We know that Athelstan has lost two large contingents from his army. Mm-hmm. The northern force that was routed by Olaf and the second force under Adils and Hring that turned on him and joined Olaf's army. Which is why the Witan decided that Athelstan should go south and draw up more men to reinforce the army. Right, and that takes time. Exactly. And Eil and Thorolf's challenge is for a week later. Which means a week of peace while Athelstan gathers his troops. And that's a week of Olaf and Constantine not ransacking Northumbria and the Midlands, yeah. which is a great deal. Right. Now, the author treats this as an army-sized duel challenge with a right. mutually understood cessation of violence during the waiting period, right? which is how duels work as well. Mm-hmm. In fact, the text says it would incur dishonor if the challenged party went on raiding while waiting the duel. Yeah. So it really is being treated like a duel. Yeah. Which means there's supposed to be a time for negotiations, uh, choosing the ground for the fight, all that good stuff that goes with uh, the duel. Which is exactly what happens. A battlefield is marked out somewhere near Wenheath, which is the place that we're calling Brunenburg. Yeah. And either way, we might as well be calling it Blanksburg because no one actually knows where it is. (laughs) X-Town. Unobtainiumshire. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, if James Cameron was in charge, right. yes. Uh, this is going to be a whole topic of conversation in the saga brief. Uh, so for now, let's just say that no one location for this battle has been universally accepted by the experts. All right. Um, but we, we could, think we have a good uh, a good line on it, don't we? We do. I think we do. Uh, but yeah. we have to listen to the saga brief to find out what it is. <laughs> That's uh, right. Who knows? If you live in England right now, perhaps you're standing on the battlefield as you listen to this. Could be. Uh, so we have a dueling ground, wherever it is. Yeah, it's actually described fairly well. I mean, this saga is very specific, and it clearly is being thought of as a dueling ground. Mm-hmm. It reads, At the place chosen for the battlefield, hazel rods had been put up to mark where it would be fought. The site was chosen carefully, as it had to be level and big enough for large armies to gather. The main feature was a level moor, with a river on one side and a large forest on the other side. That's a that's a big dueling ground. 
well, it's a big duel, involves a lot of men. And mm. we know the stakes. It's obviously a risk to offer the entirety of England as a prize. But realistically, that was already hanging in the balance. Maybe, because at the end of the week, the king hasn't returned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This whole challenge is starting to look like a bad idea, because if you don't show up for a duel, you kind of lose. Yeah, but no one involved really thinks the Anglo-Saxons will go home just because their king defaulted on a fake bet. <laughs> yes, but it's still a problem, and a loss of honor if the Norse and Scott army calls them on it. Right. Uh, so this next bit is basically about stalling for time. Yeah. First, the Scotland-Grimsons get their branch of the army on the battlefield ahead of Olaf's force, grab the high ground, and set up way more tents than they need. That's uh, smart. I like that move. Yeah, and the men are billeted in about two-thirds of the tents. But they're spread around very sparsely, and with the empty tents sort of scattered throughout the encampment. Mm-hmm. And there's a line of men guarding the camp. And with the camp set on that high ground... No one from Olaf's force can get an accurate count of the numbers. Clever. So at the end of the week, Olaf and his men are arming themselves for battle. But then messengers from the English walk into their midst to offer Olaf a deal. Our king has a great army ready for the battle. But since many of your men are of this (laughs) island, he wishes to avoid inflicting casualties on the scale that seems likely to occur. Please, he asks you. Please return to Scotland, and you will take with you a shilling of silver for every plow in England as a gesture of friendship. So, uh, that, that's, that's your herald voice? That's what a herald I sounds like? I don't know, like. it's something. <laughs> <laughs> so this offer of what's essentially a Dane guild stops Olaf in his tracks. I mean, it has to. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good offer, but not a great one. Yeah. So Dane guild, uh... It, What's an Anglo-Saxon term for the money paid to make Vikings go away? Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes very important a little bit later in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, and since there's what amounts to a dual offer on the table with all of Britain as the prize, this is, honestly, it's a comparatively small offer. But it's risk-free and no one has to die. It's a lot of money. So the offer is a silver shilling for every plow in England. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how many plows are there in England, John? Some? <laughs> Quite a few. <laughs> That's not very good. Uh, it's a bit poetical, I think. Uh, any no, good I think king, what we need, hmm? what, what we need, is someone to come in and count all of those things. Right. right. Maybe count maybe someone in Normandy shares. could could manage that. <laughs> you think? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, well, I do. Yeah. No, I think any good king understands the PR involved in casting himself as a protector of the farmer. Yeah. Yeah. We can look at Beowulf, for example. Yes. King Hrothgar's great-grandfather, who founds a Danish dynasty, is called Shield Schaefing, which more or less transliterates as Shield of the Farmer. Hey, so uh, those of you playing Saga Thing Bingo at home can cross off your Beowulf reference box for this episode. What? Uh, we don't anyway, mention Beowulf that often. The Well, that's why it's an exciting one to check off. Uh, oh, okay. The silver for plowshares thing isn't a literal statement. I think the important part of the message is the he'll give you money to go away part. <laughs> Yes. And of course, thanks to Rex Factor, we call this paying wasps with jam. (laughs) Trying to bribe raiders into going away for a while. Mm -hmm. Olaf brings the offer to his commanders, and there's a quick moot to discuss the situation. Mm -hmm. Some men want to fight, others want to take the money and run, but the majority want to push back to see if they can get a better offer. Yeah, see, that's the genius of this move. I like it. Ale and Thorolf know how these Scandinavian groups work. Olaf can't make a unilateral Mm -hmm. decision here. 
Every ship's captain and really every warrior has some say in what to do. Yeah, and I think that's such a great moment in the saga. It yeah. builds tension nicely. It also suggests something of how Vikings work, which, which right. is far more democratically. Right. I mean, it's it's really absolutely great. ahistorical, but it's you know it's sort of a it's a really nice insight into the logic of a Viking army. Yeah. Uh, so Ail and Thorolf have got Olaf in a bind. The invitation to duel for Britain was accepted in his name. Right. So his honor's at stake, but what he does next is open to debate within his army. Yeah. It's almost like the Scott the Grimsons know how to manipulate this game of honor. It's very much like that. Well, since this is a dual framework, negotiating between the two parties and even offers of a nonviolent resolution are an accepted part of the proceedings. Absolutely. And Olaf's men respond in kind. They reject the offer of a tribute, but don't close the door on accepting a larger offer. Right. And that's what the Scott the Grimsons are waiting for. The messengers, who presumably have been coached on this, ask for three days to bring this information to quote-unquote Athelstan for his uh-huh. consideration and to bring back another offer. Yeah, Athelstan. He's our king, and he's <laughs> right over there. And so's my wife, Morgan Fairchild. Yeah, that's the ticket. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> that's not a dated reference at all. <laughs> Uh, I don't think, I mean, who's uh, going to get that? So this buys three more days time. Uh, and when the messengers return, they're going to offer the same payment again, but with an additional payment in silver or gold to all the free men and leaders of the army. Yeah, this is actually starting to sound pretty generous. Yeah, it is. But it's still I would a take cal- that. Well, it's still a calculated risk. I mean, the goal isn't to get the Vikings to accept the offer but to keep calibrating the offer to create uncertainty in the mind of Olaf's men. This isn't quite the paying wasps with jam scenario. Right? Ail and Thorolf have cooked up their own version, which involves not actually giving the wasps any jam, but convincing them jam is just around the corner. I see. So jam tomorrow, but never jam today. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. Thank you, Lewis Carroll. By the way, <laughs> did you know that's supposed to be a Latin joke? About jam? Yeah, well, no. Um, jam is the homograph for the older writing of the Latin word iam, the future tense of the word now. Uh-huh. And if you uh, think back, Andy, what is now in the present tense? Oh, that's easy. I was a Latin major, remember? Nunc. Which is? <laughs> Which is a semi-homophone for none. I am tomorrow, but nunc today. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> you should... You should uh, <laughs> drown in your child's vomit. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, Lewis Carroll had his shortcomings, but the man was a Stop master it. of bad puns. Um, yes, he was. Anyway, the upshot here is that Olaf has to spend more time in consultation with his men and returns with a counteroffer. He'll call off the army if Athelstan pays everything he's promised and throws in Northumbria as a client kingdom for Olaf to rule. Oh, come on. That's a big ask. Who's going to say yes to that? Uh, And this feeds into the medieval history of Northumbria's self-definition, right? Northumbria thinks of itself as a semi-independent sub-kingdom. It actually predates Mm -hmm. the Anglo-Saxons, this whole thing. We we Uh, really don't have time for that, do we? I mean, we spent so much time on the I mean, it's a podcast, you know. We kind of decide what we have time for. (laughs) We have time for everything. No, if we did that, boy, that would be real problematic. (laughs) But, uh, you know, a thorough examination of Northumbrian social political history... That might be a bit outside the bounds. However, I'm willing to entertain it. You get to, oh, so you get to drag in all your kings, but I can't drag in the uh, the, the Hollower folk and the people of St. Cuthbert. 
Uh, <laughs> no. All right. Uh, so, somewhat predictably, the messengers ask for three days' grace to bring the offer to, quote-unquote, Athelstan. Three days' grace. Is that the name of some kind of Christian rock band? Sounds like it would be. <laughs> if it's not, it is now. You can have that one for your band name. I don't need... I, that would not be my band uh, name. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be something like Thorolf and the Sledgehammers featuring the cats or something. I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I got to work on it. Yeah. So at this point, we're getting close to two weeks since Adelstan's been gone. So hopefully, yeah. he's building up his army. Right. But it's okay because after the second delay, Athelstan actually rides into camp Huzzah. or near the camp, along with his uh, needed reinforcements at his back. Yeah. And so he's able to meet personally with some messengers sent by Olaf to discuss this latest ah, offer. So he was there all the time. No. <laughs> so uh, this is a bit of a weird meeting. For mm-hmm. one thing, it's the first time Athelstan's actually heard about this generous offer that's been made in his name. Hey, I, you delegate authority to a bunch of mercenaries. I think you have to take what you get. <laughs> and again, why why are <laughs> Thorolf and Ale in charge of the negotiations for England? Did you did you read the name on the saga oh, when you walked that's in? Right, it's Ale saga. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> odd that no English source mentions them at all, though. <laughs> well, it's uh, prejudice is what it is. But uh, now that Athelstan's on the scene, he's going to do a bit of renegotiating. The current offer on the table is a silver coin mm-hmm. for every plow in England. Plus gold coins for the army's freemen and leadership. Right. And Olaf, remember, added the whole of Northumbria into the deal. So Athelstan, who probably hasn't had time to get out of his riding cloak yet, listens to this offer, considers it for a moment, and then says, I give Olaf leave to return to Scotland with his men if he repays all the wealth he wrongly took in this country. And then we may declare peace between our peoples. Also... If he is willing to swear allegiance to me, he may have Scotland to rule in my name as a tributary sub-king. Go and tell him that. <laughs> that is not congenial. It is not. But very kingly. And it's clearly no offer at all. I mean, all he's actually offering is Scotland as a sub-kingdom. And Scotland already has a king. Yes. Olaf's ally, Constantine. Right. So, So this message is essentially... I came here to kick somebody's ass, and it's up to you whether it's yours or your friends. <laughs> this whole thing has the flavor of a trickster episode, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I mean, the, the delaying game that Ale and Thorolf have been playing doesn't make any sense, I think, unless we read it that way. Uh, it's been a traditional reading of this section. Uh, Lee Hollander, Alistair Campbell, Ian McDougall, uh, a lot of scholars have made the I'm probably forgetting a ton of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people have argued that this whole episode and the battle that follows really owe more to um, storytelling traditions, even folklore in some cases, than to a knowledge of the actual battle. So really what you're saying is that this is a saga, a story built from the cultural memory of historical events that may or may not be remotely based in fact. Gee, it's almost like you have that prepared. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an argument as we go forward that there's something else going on here. But okay. yeah, more or less. I mean, it's fun to read scholars of the English Middle Ages grappling with the sagas, though. So, okay, John, I think it's time for a battle. You ready? Oh, thank goodness. I was hoping we hadn't done all this for nothing. Part 25, A Natural Born Killer. At this point, neither side is interested in waiting any longer, and the turncoat earls, Adils and Hring, ask Olaf for permission to lead a force against the English at first light. Yeah, that's not exactly what they say. 
Um, Adil lays into Olaf first for letting the English hoodwink him. Well, this is exactly what I said would come to pass. While we have spent so much time sitting here waiting, they have mustered their forces. But their king has been nowhere to be seen until now. That's pretty good on Adil's. You know, he's understands the whole the whole thing. But again, this is how it things work for the Vikings. Everyone has a free tongue as long as they're willing to deal with the consequences of mouthing right. off. So, so our focus now shifts to the Scotland Grimsons against the Turncoat Earls. Right, that's this section. Right. Yeah, these are the two forward units of the armies. Adils and Hring are leading a kind of expeditionary force in the hope of catching Adelson's army off guard. And the Scott the Grimsons are only accompanied by the northern forces of ex-Earl Alfgeir. Yeah, this is the surviving Earl from the battle against Olaf that cost the Anglo-Saxons Northumbria. Right, yeah. He's still hanging around for some reason. <laughs> and in spite of his demotion, he's the ranking Anglo-Saxon lord present. And Athelstan, meanwhile, still hasn't made camp at his site. He's a few miles off with the main right, army. But nearby, right? I mean, we just saw him meet with the representatives of Olaf a day before this. Uh, we're told a bit later that Athelstan is spending the night in a boor nearby, which is a fortress mm-hmm. town uh, that his grandfather probably made. <laughs> um, he's far enough not to be an immediate factor in the battle, but close enough for a few men to ride mm-hmm. in a day. He's got an army of mostly foot soldiers on the move, so they'll be there soon, I'm sure. Yeah, so Adelin Ring's plan is actually pretty good. Uh, try to pick off the advance force mm-hmm. before the main army arrives, both to reduce the enemy numbers and to demoralize the arriving troops. Right? Nothing, uh, nothing kills the enthusiasm for a battle like finding the guys you're reinforcing all laying around dead on the field. Uh, That's right. Yes. But Eil and Thorolf aren't actually caught off guard at all, but they are still pretty exposed. They, they split their forces into two groups. The larger force is made up mostly of local northern men and is commanded by Alfgeir, and the other serves as kind of an elite strike force led by the Scotland Grimsons. Yeah, such a frustrating moment. The text has already made it clear that no one has any faith in Alfgeir's ability as a battlefield <laughs> yeah. leader. Remember, the ad hoc Wheaton brought together by Athelstan <laughs> demanded his demotion. And now, here he is taking charge of the army's right, advance guard. Ad hoc Wheaton is now the name of my band, Dibs. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like ad hoc Wheaton should be the name of your breakfast cereal. <laughs> No, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a band to be able to use that name. Ad hoc we ton. All right. So up to this point, we ha- really haven't talked much about Ail or Thorolf mm-hmm. in this episode. There's a lot of moving parts in this section of the saga, and for a couple of chapters, the Scott Grimsons are just being moved along with the narrative. Well, we can make up for lost time now because the brothers are going to arm themselves okay. and get out on the field. Uh, Thorolf right. is carrying a broad, thick shield and a spear with a massive blade. Uh, he's also strapped with a sword he calls Longblade, very creative name, and wears a heavy helmet he seems to have scrounged from somewhere. Uh, Ale is wearing a short sword he calls Adder that he took during those raids in Corland. He's also mm-hmm. got a shield and a spear in his hand. Neither one of them is wearing armor, which uh, keep track of that. I think it's going to be significant later. Uh, but apart from the lack of armor, they're all suited up for battle. Looking good, boys. So I know, I'm, and I know they're trying to get on the battlefield, but yes, uh, before onto the field where the future of England hangs in the balance. No time for digression, but just one digression. Audible sigh. <laughs> <laughs> you could just sigh audibly. No, I felt it was to important to say audible, audible sigh. <laughs> well, I think this is important. Those spears that they mention are strange uh, okay. weapons. The author says. They were thrusting spears. 
The blade is two L's long, tapering to a point at one end but broad at the other. The shaft extended only a hand's length below the socket, which joined it to the blade. An iron spike secured the socket, and the entire shaft was clad in iron. Such spears were called mail scrapers. So these aren't spears for throwing? No, no. These are hand weapons. Uh, how long is a 2L blade? We've, we've covered this before, but an L isn't a reliable unit of measurement. Uh, in 13th century Iceland, when Ale Saga was written, it probably comes in around 20 inches. These are spears with a long, broad blade, 40 inches long, and a shaft only about a hand's length below the socket. Yeah, I mean, another word for that is a sword. <laughs> uh, long or blade? Brunthjari, uh, which is the Saga's word. Uh-huh. It literally means male spear, but uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it gets translated as, I know you're going to love this, Andy, it gets translated as halberd. <laughs> oh, Lord. Another one? Why does everyone want halberds in the saga so bad? I, I honestly think, I'm starting to think it's just that we can get more email questions about weapons. Oh, bring it on. Yeah, I just uh, finished teaching uh, my little <laughs> summer session thing about uh, mm-hmm. halberds. And uh, yeah, we, we really worked just on the broom throw <laughs> uh, that uh, Kveldov mm-hmm. was carrying. But uh, yeah, yeah, halberds sure. everywhere. But it doesn't make any right. sense. The shape of these spears, as you say, is more like a sword or maybe a cleaver. It's a chopping weapon, not a halberd. Maybe. Halberds have long poles, John. Well, maybe. On the other hand, we're going to see how these are used in battle. Not maybe. No, no. Halberds but, do have long but poles. given that we've already established that halberds don't exist in 10th century Iceland, we need to figure out what this is. And what they think a halberd is may be what this is. Uh, we're going to see how these are used in battle. And halberd makes some sense once you see them in action. And uh, speaking of okay. action. All right. So now it's time for battle. Hooray! Each side advances on the field in two units. The turncoat earls, Adils and Ring, command two equal forces of men, while Ale and Thorolf's Vikings are the smaller of the two English forces. The rest of the English force is the Northumbrian army commanded by Ulfgear. We shouldn't forget to mention that the Scotland Grimsons, as commanders of their own wing of the army, have a standard bearer. Of course. And they've given that honor to Thorfinn the Strong, who we met last episode. Okay. Thorfinn's the man whose brother, Thorvald the Overbearing, was assassinated by Queen Gunnild's brothers. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, he, He's still a trusted member of the Scott Grimson's crew. Yes. Standard Bearer is, as you know from previous episodes of this podcast, uh, a prestigious and rather dangerous position. Only your best <laughs> men, or those that you want to see die, <laughs> are put in right. that spot. Um, let's hope that he's a little bit luckier than his brother. Um, uh, Thorfinn, Thorfinn, he isn't a Norwegian companion by any chance, is he? Is he wearing a red... He is actually, yeah, he's a Norwegian companion. Oh, the poor fellow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we didn't mention it last time, but Thorvald the Overbearing was a Norwegian companion as well. Oh, these poor Norwegians. Maybe he took the brunt of the curse and Thorfinn will be okay. That's really optimistic of you. The worst (laughs) thing that one could do if you're a Norwegian is partner Mm -hmm. up with some Icelanders and go into battle. Right. Poss- well, the worst thing you could do is to do that while waving a big flag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Here we are. Right. Uh, Come and so get us. we're going to see how Thorfinn fares. Uh, uh, not well. So Adil's column veers off to engage Alfgar's Northumbrians on one flank, while Hring's men rush at the smaller Skalgrimson unit. Uh, Alfgar's <laughs> men are advancing along the riverbank on one side of the battlefield, while the Skalgrimson's force is moving in and along the edge of the wood on the opposite side. 
And then all four groups rush forward, and we have a battle on two sides, slowly fronting into the center of the field. And we can deal with the other part of the battle fairly quickly. Yeah, so it turns out that Alfgir, there's a reason he lost the first battle. (laughs) Yes, and there's a reason the rest of Athelstan's earls wanted him demoted. He's just hopeless at leading a battle. He has an advantage (laughs) of numbers against Adils, but his men are outmatched fairly quickly. And for the second battle in a row, Alfgir survives by breaking and running after a short fight. Mm -hmm. Adil's force pursues him for miles, so he must be running pretty quickly. But there's no (laughs) attempt to regroup. The Northumbrians are scattered, and Alfgir and his mounted men ride hard and fast until he's he's past the fortress where Athelstan's men are preparing for the battle. So they're really running. Yep. They, they still haven't left the fortress. No, that's important information because it means there isn't going to be any reinforcement for Ael and Thorolf if they can't hold the line. Yeah, they're foreigners. But, uh, but Alfgaard doesn't stop there. He mm. says to his men, I don't want to go to the town. We were abused last time we returned <laughs> to the king and after suffering defeat at Olaf the Red's hands and King Avalston will not think our qualities have improved on this expedition. I mean, he sounds like little Lord Fauntleroy, but he's got a good point. He's got a very good point. It's very accurate. So Alfgar rides for a night and another day until they reach a place called Earl's Ness in the southwest. This is all very specific detail here. Mm-hmm. Alfgar catches a ship to France then, travels to his family's <laughs> to French France. estates, and never returns to England again. Wow. Now, now that's a retreat. <laughs> Off the field, out of the kingdom, across the channel, Uh and into his bed at his parents' house in France. I mean, (laughs) where does this come from? This saga is so detailed. It's amazing. They have to be reading some source. They they must know. This must have happened, right? Right. No. No? (laughs) But... No, but I do think that we're looking at something that comes from sources. It just may not be directly relevant sources. I mean, why would you include this detail? Why not just say he right. retreated? But no, because you've got to send him funnier. all the way to France. I, this, this to me is saga humor at its best. Oh, it's great. There's, no, there's never a tip of a wink to tell you this is a joke. But this is very funny that yeah. he's still – you have to assume – when you think about the timeline involved here, he's still retreating the next day. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is – it's so funny. I, John, I was reading this uh, this morning at a, uh, a bagel shop prepping for the episode, just kind of going over what, we, what we're going to cover again. Mm-hmm. I was laughing so hard <laughs> while I read this part <laughs> for no reason really. But it's just so funny. Oh, no, it's tremendous. But Once just the you- idea that at some point three days from now, he sort of, you know, sits down at the table at his parents' house in France and says, well, I'm home. <laughs> What and that's you, the end of Alfgar's story. What have you been up to, son? <laughs> nothing, nothing. I didn't die. <laughs> oh, man. So, as we say in Icelandic literature, Alfgar is now out of this saga. <laughs> and yes, he is. Yes, he is. And Adils has pursued him for a while, but halts his men quickly and wheels around to somehow re-enter the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, John, what's happening back on the old battlefield? Right. So the Scotland-Grimsons saw the Northumbrian force crumble and run, but they're engaged in heavy fighting with Hring's unit. Mm. Uh, but then a while later, they spot Adil's force coming back onto the field in good order behind them. And Thorolf realizes they're in danger of being caught in a penetration attack and crushed between the two forces. 
So he performs a rapid redeployment, separating a unit of men under his own banner to continue the action against Hring and freeing the others with Ale. Now, Ale turns those men to face the charge from Adel's men, and their wall is able to hold against the initial rush. Ale is guarding his brother's exposed flank and rear and repulsing Adel's attack. As two sides settle into battle, it's clear that Ale's smaller group has the strength and experience to hold up against the larger force, and Adel's is suffering greater casualties. But he still has a numbers advantage, and he's pressing forward. Right. Meanwhile, Thoral's men punch through the front of Ring's warriors, and then I think I think we'll have to let the saga tell the story at this point. Oh yes, we're at this point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Then Thorolf began fighting so furiously that he threw his shield over his back, grabbed his spear with both hands, and charged forward, hacking and thrusting to either side. People leapt out of the way, but he killed many of them. He cleared a path to Earl Hring's standard. There was no holding him back. He killed Hring's standard-bearer and chopped down the pole. Then he drove his spear through the Earl's coat of mail, into his chest and through his body lifted him up on it above his head, and thrust the end into the ground. Everyone Hmm. saw how the Earl died there, both his own men and his enemies. Then Thorolf drew his sword and hacked to either side, and his men attacked. Many British and Scots were killed then, and others turned and fled. So. Yeah. So, so we need need to talk about that. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Uh, But just to finish up the battlefield stuff first... Uh, Adils sees his brother's death from across the field, realizes that Thorolf and Ael are about to turn their undivided attention on him, and makes a break for it. He and his men flee into the forest and disappear among the trees. Yeah, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The Scott Grimsons have won the day, with a best bloodshed candidate, might I add. I-, I think so. Both sides now regroup to lick their wounds and assess their losses. The turncoat earls are dead or fled from the field with most of their men, but Alfgeir's failure means that Eil and Thorolf have lost most of the advanced army. Right, but now the reinforcements start to pour in. Uh, Olaf the Red arrives with his army, his entire army. Constantine's Scots army is still kind of in the background somewhere in the story. Yeah. But the Scots-Norse-Celtic army of Olaf is a huge force in the field. Olaf gets the news that Hring has died and Adels is missing, but that Athelstan's men were mostly run off the field as well. Yeah, and meanwhile, Athelstan's men are pouring in all night long, forming a new camp alongside the battlefield. Right, so now his army consists of the survivors of Alfgeir's retreat, Aelin Thorolf's core group, and the reinforcement army he's brought with him from the south. Now, this is starting to get a little bit complicated if you pay attention to all the different moving pieces. Oh yeah, it's starting to get seriously battle is what's <laughs> going on here. Uh, but let's talk about Thorolf. Yeah. So Thorolf's just gone berserk for the first time, or at least the first time we're aware of, right? Yeah, I mean, there's other explanations for what happened, but if we put this passage up against the literary construct of a berserk, particularly in this story, yeah. It's, it's important, I think, to remind people, though, that berserks are a literary construct. Uh, Lois Bragg and others tell us that the figure of the berserk enters into Icelandic writing sometime not too long before Ale Saga is written. Yeah, this is actually probably one of the earliest and best portraits of a berserk strain in the family line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, what matters is whether Thorolf's acting according to this saga's understanding of how certain men can take on the character of animals Absolutely. or go berserk, yep. uh, which which is how Thorolf's grandfather is described. Right, and we've seen Scott Legram and Ale go into similar rages as well. It's definitely a family mm-hmm. trait. Yeah, Ale is a curious case, though. 
he, he's a little better at self-control than his relatives, for one thing. A little. Uh, and in a few other ways, he isn't exactly like his father and grandfather. Which we've Right. And I think that's what makes on. this moment so telling. Right, This family's gene pool tends to produce either good-looking, outgoing, popular, maybe slightly naive people, like uh, the Scott Grimson's uncle, Thorolf Mark I, or their grandmother, Solbjörg. Or else, mm-hmm. misanthropic, bestial, trollish berserks like Kveldolf or Skotlagrim. Mm-hmm. But in this generation, things are a bit scrambled about. Eil checks all the boxes for the trollish side of the family, but he's also a sensitive poet who makes deep connections to other people. And Thorolf, Thorolf's a good-looking popular guy who just went berserk. Yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're saying, but we should also acknowledge that there's another precedent for the kind of fighting Thorolf does. Mm-hmm. Do you... uh? You remember a little man named Gunnar Hamunderson? Ah, Gunnar of the Hudredi Slam, of course. That's right, yes, exactly. Uh, Gunnar was also known for running people through, hoisting them up into the air onto his weapon, tossing bodies about like ragdolls. Everything we've just seen Thorolf doing, actually. Well, for pushing that idea, there's also the weapon itself. Remember, Gunnar's uh, quote-unquote halberd, or atgir, is what got us started on this whole question of weapon types in the sagas. That's right. The old halberd mystery. Good yes. stuff. Yes. Um, okay, now, Thorolf's got a, a brunthvari, a mm-hmm. male scraper, but his fighting technique is otherwise pretty similar to Gunnar's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no one ever suggested that Gunnar was a berserk. So True. Can we really count Thorolf's uh, handling of this situation as berserker rage? I, no, I think we emphasize the rules and early date of this saga for a reason. Right. Um, in Ale's saga, in this saga, a man of this family who suddenly goes into overdrive in battle, kills entire groups of men as they flee in terror, and hoists an enemy onto his spear, is exhibiting signs of what we can call a hereditary condition. Yeah. Yeah, I can play devil's advocate here, but Thorolf's clearly inherited the family weakness, I guess. Or or strength, if you want. I'm not sure which. Uh, and then we have to consider the armor as well. No, there isn't the armor. Which I'm guessing is your point, right? There's no armor. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, ar- the brothers aren't wearing armor at all, apart from shields, and Thorolf's got a helmet. Uh, mm-hmm. And that gets at part of that mythology of the berserk. Yeah, the bear shirt or bear mm-hmm. sark, right? Yep. The idea that berserks went into battle without protection. Exactly. Both brothers dress for battle as if a berserk rage is a possibility. Right. Or else they just prefer to dress lightly for battle, but that's very light for going into a heavy battle. Well, I mean, it's a nice warm day, so... <laughs> All right. You don't want to be getting uh, stuffy. Sure, sure. Uh, so Thorolf and Ale have saved the day, uh, but another day is about to dawn. That's and true. the northern army is about to unleash its full strength onto the field. Mm-hmm. But Athelstan's southern force has finally reached Brunenburg as well. And now he's got two Scotlagrimson berserks at the head of his army. On to day two. Part 26. Bears the back of a brotherless man. That old chestnut. Mm-hmm. So Athelstan is extremely happy with the Scott Grimsons right now. Well, he should be. Uh, they've managed to stall the entire northern army for almost two weeks by using this complex bait-and-switch diplomacy. And then they led an undersized half-army to victory against the turncoat Northumbrian force. He should be grateful. He is. And in good Anglo-Saxon tradition, he makes a point of publicly praising the brothers and promising them his permanent friendship. Yeah. Now, Anglo-Saxon lords, if they're behaving properly, they're kind of like good store managers. Uh, praise publicly, blame privately. Okay. Uh, notably, for example, uh, Athelstan is full of loud praise for the Scott Grimsons, 
But there's no mention of Alfgear having once again, what would you call it? Mm, I would say screwed the pooch, maybe? Yes, yeah, romanced the dog, maybe. Yes, thank you. Let's try to, mm. let's try to, let's try to keep it PG-13 around here. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> as we said, Alfgear is now out of this saga and on his way to visit the family ranch in France. <laughs> Best forgotten about, really. Uh, so Ale and Thorolf and Athelstan, they all spend the night in celebration, but also in planning the next morning's elaborate battle strategy. Right, now that strategy, and stop me if you've heard this one before, Andy, that strategy is to split the army into two columns and charge onto the field side by side. That does sound familiar. Yeah, I'd have thought that being king would require being a bit faster at climbing the learning curve than mm-hmm. Athelstan maybe has done, but Athelstan <laughs> doesn't seem worried about the way he lost most of his advance force yesterday, so he's going to do the exact same thing as if that's yeah. going to work suddenly. I don't know whether he's meant to be worried about it. I mean, it's not like this is the same situation, right? Because this time he's not relying on Alfgear and his favored tactic of run first and ask questions later. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the plan is to have a larger part of the English force advancing along the river side of the field, led by Athelstan, with Eol leading a kind of elite guard at the head of the attack. But Thorolf will lead the second column, and his job is to guard Athelstan's flank. As the king says, The Scots are haphazard in their formations, running here and there and turning up in unexpected places. They can do a great deal of damage if men are not watching for them, but... They waver quickly in the field if attacked in force. Yeah, see, now that that sounds like it might actually work. It does, and it's, uh, it's such a great, it's it's a really interesting moment in the saga. Yeah, uh, yeah. Very specific details, and I love this idea of the Scots and their battle tactics. There, there's an awareness of what they might do on the field and why we should right. be aware of it. And interestingly, we would assume in what we think from what we know elsewhere, an accurate description of the Scots' preferred battle tactics. Yeah. Well, right? you would think that the Vikings fight and would run, know that, Fight right? and melt away, you know. That, that's, mm-hmm. But that's interesting that uh, that this writer, Snorri or whoever it is, knows that when writing Ale Saga. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, Thorolf's all for this plan because, again, it's, it's sound tactics. Uh, but Ale doesn't like it. I do not wish it that Thorolf should be separated from me in battle, though I'd like to be put where the need is greatest and the fighting is hardest. Brother, shouldn't we let the king decide where to put us? Typical brown nose, huh? (laughs) Let's do as he asks. If you like, I will take the place that he's given to you. (sighs) <laughs> you know, obviously, once Thorolf puts it like that, there's no way for Ale to back out. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's sort of calling out little brother there. Yeah. Uh, so Ale now has to go ahead with the king's plan. But again, it's Thorolf kind of, you know, deferring to the royal authority. Absolutely. And that often leads to trouble. So and let's see how this plays out. As Ale expects. Yeah. says, the time will come that I will regret these arrangements. Always so negative is Ale. Isn't well, he? <laughs> so he's, got a, he's got a counterbalance, uh, Sonny Jim, Thoroth Mark true, II, yeah. and his, his well, belief that everything's going to be just fine. It's the same kind of attitude that his uh, father and grandfather had, right? Anytime they ever talk to a right. Thoroth, they're like, I think this is the last time we're going <laughs> to see you, buddy. Well, I think they've discovered that if you keep predicting that's the last time you're going to see somebody named Thoroth, eventually you're going to be right, right eventually. <laughs> yes, right, yeah. Anyway, so that's how things are going to be organized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Ale's got a couple of reasons to be legitimately worried. Uh, sure. First of all, Thorolf's being sent off with a smaller force with the job of protecting the king's army's entire flank. Mm-hmm. That's a great plan if Olaf's army agrees to attack Athelstan first instead <laughs> of just rolling his entire army into Thorolf's men and wiping them out in a single charge. Yeah, well, that's true. 
Um, and Ale's concern is probably about a couple other things as well. Uh, yeah. For one thing, Thorolf discovered his ability to to channel his family's troll lycanthrope berserk gene yesterday. Mm-hmm. Now, it probably saved the day, and it definitely impressed the king, but there's another side to that. Which is? I, I, you know what? I think we should talk about that later. Oh, all right. Then let's, uh, let's get into the battle. All right, sure. So Athelstan's men reach the field first, and they break into these two uneven columns, with Thorolf leading his men off to skirt the tree line at the edge of the field. Oh, and he's got Thorfinn the Strong with him, once again, as standard bearer. Oh, we right. met point. him in our last episode. Yes, good. Uh, as Olaf enters the field uh, across from these two, uh, he counters Athelstan's strategy by splitting his force into two equal columns, just as Athelstan predicted would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Olaf's royal standard and his Irish Norse champions are marching to face Ael's elite troops, while the Scots split off to try to harry the line and to face Thorolf's force. Yeah, so... This is actually working out just as Athelstan planned. That's what Thorolf's thinking. So Thorolf's mm-hmm. men stop their advance and quarter turn to face the Scots' assault. And soon there's a fierce battle all up and down the line. Uh, Thorolf and Thorfinn begin to move. It's And this is a complex move, but they're taking a small strike force and they're moving along behind the line of engagement, right? advancing along their own front line mm-hmm. with the plan of advancing around the Scots and exposing Olaf's flank on the other side of the field. Yeah, but Thorolf and Thorfinn, still flush with the previous day's success, get ahead of most of their men. Mm -hmm. And that's when there's a sudden rush from the tree line behind them. And the two men are surrounded by attacking Northumbrians. Right. Adils and his men are back. And they've caught Thorolf totally off guard. Before he can do anything, Thorolf is stabbed by several spears and falls to the ground by the forest's edge. Yeah. Um... I mean, we'll deal with the tragedy in a moment, but from the narrative point of view, this is just one of the great misdirects in medieval literature for my money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we're so primed for Thorolf's death in battle, but everything about the family backstory suggests a great last stand, probably while trying to kill a king. What we have instead is a surprise rush and Thorolf's down. Yeah. And unless you're reading super carefully, there's no reason to expect Adels to return to the field. No. I think the author does a great job of setting up the reader here. Right? We saw Alfgir flee all the way to Normandy. We saw Adel's brother Hring killed in battle. And then Adel's and his men, quote, run into the trees. They're never actually said to have fled any farther than that. And remember, Olaf thinks that Adel's is likely dead, so no yeah. one is expecting them. So, so they've been hiding out there in the forest all day and night? Yeah, no, as far as we know, uh, even Olaf didn't know there was anyone hiding in those woods, right? He's, he believes that these guys have been run off and destroyed. Nobody really expects them to show up again in the battle. The surprise is total on both sides. So much so that Thorfinn the Strong never even tries to retaliate. All that he can do <laughs> is run with Thorolf's standard back to the rest of Thorolf's men, either to rally them or to save himself from being killed. Well, maybe a little of both. Still, he's showing remarkable self-preservation instincts for a Norwegian companion, I think. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Meanwhile, a great shout of victory goes up from Adel's men when Thorolf is cut down. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, to think about this from the other side's perspective for a moment, this is a great moment for Adel's. Oh, sure. Yeah. He, he saw Thorolf impale his brother Hring on a spear and hoist the corpse into the air just less than 24 hours ago, right? Right, right. Any Germanic literary context would demand that Adel seek revenge for that killing, whether on the battlefield or not. Right. Now, meanwhile, 
From across the field, Eil now sees Thorolf standard retreating, hears the cry goes up from Adel's men, and knows his brother can't be with the standard. Right? His, mm-hmm. his logic is that his brother would not be retreating in the face of the enemy. That's right. Uh, he rushes across the field, scattering men as he goes, and he reaches Thorolf's men, who are able to tell him briefly what happened, although they don't know the details. Eil rushes past his own men to get to the enemy, and Thorfinn falls in behind him. And Thorfinn still has the brother's standard. Yes. So he turns Eil's mad rush into an attack with the men forming a wedge in his wake. Right. This is a very kinetic part of the saga. Um, it absolutely is. Eil charges into the enemy ranks, and while his men engage with the attackers, Eil goes after the leader. He cuts Adels down after a few minutes of fighting, and he and the rest of his men run the rest of the Scots off the field. Then they pivot, charge into King Olaf's exposed flank, and smash through those ranks as well. Almost as if his whole troop is in a berserker rage right, at this exactly. point. Olaf is killed in the fighting, and after the massacre, the few remaining northerners flee from battle. Right, and England is saved. And England is England now. Really, <laughs> I mean, true. this is the moment where we can say that a kingdom with roughly the boundaries and historical continuity of modern England comes into being. Hmm. And it's all thanks to Eil and Thorolf, two uh, wooden no. stranger Icelanders, right? <laughs> no, it isn't. Well, it is in this story. Yes, we can. You know, we can save the actual history for the saga brief, and there's a lot well, of differences. I mean, I think we need. You know, just in case people don't have to listen to the brief, uh, we should explain that almost none of this lines up historically. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about that, then no, two Icelandic brothers do not create the Kingdom of England through their battlefield heroics and berserker <laughs> rages. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think we really need to say that, though. It kind of. I mean, sure. Side. But we should explain again that the story we're getting here is almost entirely divorced from the very little history we know about this battle. Uh, For one thing, King Olaf the Red didn't die at Brunenborough. He did Uh, not. He lost, but escaped alive. Uh, For that matter, so did Constantine, the Scots king, whose story got kind of conflated into Olaf in this saga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this author really wants to make this story uh, an an Irish-Norwegian versus Icelander kind of thing. Yeah, uh, but he just seems fundamentally disinterested in the historical realities. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, The poem, The Battle of Brunnebrook, mentions five minor kings and seven earls who die in the battle, among them Constantine's son and heir. And some sources and scholars speculate that Owen of Strathclyde, the third leader of the army, the Welsh leader, might have been among those killed in battle as well. On the English side, Athelstan is supposed to have lost two nephews in the battle. Right. And that's not to mention that Athelstan's brother Edmund is essentially erased from this version of the story. Uh, just as Constantine is. It's fair to say that our author has other priorities, I think. <laughs> the fact that Athelstan wins the battle and thus control of England is, is something of an afterthought to the tragic death of a single Icelander in this saga. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a, and speaking of that, we should address the subtext of Thorolf's death, or at least a subtext. Oh, okay. Is this going to be about the Berserk Rage? Oh, of course it is. Uh-huh. Uh, Andy, let me remind you of a passage from earlier in this saga. When, when Scott Le Grimm and his father Kveldulf were sailing to Iceland, Kveldulf was coming down off of a berserk fury, right? It's a, stemming from a revenge raid over the death of the first Thorolf. Uh-huh. It is said of people who could take on the character of animals or went berserk that just after it wore off, they were left weaker than usual. Uh, and Kveldulf, if you remember, is actually fatally weakened by his final assault on King Harald's ships. Uh-huh. Yeah. In other words, berserks expend all their energy in a rage, 
And when that force leaves them, they're they're weakened, even dangerously weak. Right, uh, and that makes physiological sense, right? The adrenaline rush. Uh, but we can mm-hmm. also think about it from a variety of folkloric perspectives. Uh, some sagas and some scholars overlap berserks with uh, animal spirits, uh, lycanthropes, trolls. Uh, but whatever the rage comes from, it demands a cost. So to think of this in non-narrative terms, there's mm-hmm. a massive adrenaline rush that comes with a rage, but the consequence of that is exhaustion and weakness. More or less, yeah. Uh, we can think back to Erbija Saga for, I think, a classic example of this. Oh, sure, yeah. This is Snorri Gothi plotting with Killer Stuart to kill the two Swedish berserks by forcing them to use their exceptional strength and then killing them in their weakness afterwards. <laughs> yeah, if I remember by uh, locking them in a sauna and nearly boiling them before stabbing <laughs> yes. them to death. Yeah, maybe not the proudest moment for your old Thingman Snorri there. Uh, I think you mean our Thingmen. Killer Stuart is one of your men, I believe. Oh, I mean, yeah, but he was clearly under a bad influence from Snorri Gothen. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, the point is that Thorolf turns out... Man. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what we're trying to say here is that Thorolf is a late bloomer as a berserk. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a problem because he's not really familiar with the need to be careful after a rage. Yeah, we said an episode or so ago that Ale and Thorolf exhibit an unexpected mix of qualities from the two sides of their family. Ale takes after his father in looks, temperament, maybe trollishness, and so on. But he's also a talkative poet, where his father is a confirmed introvert. Right. Now, no, the, the quali- those qualities of Scotlagrim are the same qualities that Grandpa Kveldolf had as well. And meanwhile, Thorolf has been Thorolf. Right? Uh, mm-hmm. Thorolf Mark II, with the same outgoing nature love of wealth, and tendency to charm and befriend powerful men that Thorolf Mark I had. Yeah, and now he seems to have some berserker tendencies. Yeah. Uh, and this is, I want to talk about this because I think this is really interesting. Armand Jakobsen has written about Thorolf's uh, ability to feel sympathy and even empathy for Eil's position in life and to understand him. Right? He calls that remarkable, sort of this ability yeah. to empathize with his difficult brother. But if we think about the ways in which these two are kind of intertwined with each other, I think if we're interested in a psychological analysis of the story, we don't have to be. But if we are, that explains a lot about why Thorolf Mark II and Ale form a partnership. Uh, and you think about when uh, Thorolf Mark I and Scott Legrim never really seemed especially close. No, definitely uh, not. Right? These two brothers comprehend some things about one another that the rest of their family can't quite understand. I'm not articulating this all that well, really, but it's something I'm working on in an article right now, and I'm, I'm becoming fascinated by it. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think I, 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 I think I understand what you're saying and I like it. Um, so you, you said something else. There's, what's the other thing you wanted to... What? You, you said that Ale was worried about a couple of things, right? So what's the oh, other thing that he's worried about? Um, prophecy uh, and oh. history, I suppose. Yeah, see, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, history mainly because that's yeah. my thing. Well, the prophecy too, though, right? Like most saga figures who work in magic or poetry, Ale's got an occasional and incomplete ability to see the future. Sure, but he didn't need to be able to see the future to know what happened to his uncle Thorolf. <laughs> I like to call him Thorolf 1.0. Uh, 1.0, excuse me. You prefer the marks, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, being a popular and outgoing Thorolf in his family, especially one who's getting tangled up in the service of a king, that's dangerous. <laughs> it, it, it goes without saying, right? And ultimately, while the details are different, the result is the same. The Thorolf's fascination, and Thorolf plural there, the Thorolf's mm-hmm. fascination with the affairs of kings have fatal consequences. Yeah. And the misanthropic introverts of the family are left to mourn and pick up the pieces. See, I feel like you're getting a little maudlin here. 
Thorolf's death is supposed to be maudlin, John. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, now, I, like we said when we started recording, this is the the second emotional climax of the saga, right? So there's yeah. something to that. Uh, Thorolf Mark I or Thorolf 1.0's death was a tragedy because he was a good, if somewhat self-aggrandizing man, brought low by treacherous gossip and a jealous king. That poor bastard. But Thorolf Mark II's death is different. There's nothing operatic about this Thorolf's death. It's a tragedy because it's a death that our protagonist feels deeply. The first death we experience as an injustice, as the culmination of a life story. The second Mm -hmm. registers as an emotional loss. It's a part of Ale's story, not an end in itself. Yeah. And that makes sense when we look at the text. When Thorolf 1.0 died, we follow the story of his killer, Harold Fairhair. But here, we follow the story of Ale as he searches the battlefield for his brother's body. Mm -hmm. The text reads, Ale returned to the scene of the attack with his men and found his dead brother Thorolf. He picked up his body and washed it, then dressed the corpse according to custom. They dug a grave and buried Thorolf in it. Ale clasped a gold ring onto each of his brother's arms before he left him, and then they piled rocks over the grave. Ale spoke a verse. The slayer of the Earl, unfearing, ventured bravely forth in the thunder god's din. Bold-hearted Thorolf fell. The ground will grow over my great brother near when. Deep as my sorrow is, I must keep it to myself. Hmm. That's a good one. Ale's still young here, and his poetry is still conventional in some ways. Hmm. But we're starting to see that he's far from a conventional saga figure. Yeah. We've seen this sort of tender treatment of the dead before, but usually it's mothers, it's sisters and wives who are seen in moments like these. Right. And we've seen emotional moments from men in the sagas before as well, especially from the warrior poets. But I think these little details, right? Ale finding and washing the body for burial, uh, climbing down into the grave to clasp arm rings on his brother before they cover him in earth. I mean, this is pathos. Uh, and the move of the verse from celebration of Thoral's battlefield achievement to the leaden statement of his death and interment to mm-hmm. Ale's grief asks the reader to contemplate that great loss. It does. Yeah. And that's where we should pick up the next time. Mm-hmm. With Ale coming to terms with Thorolf's death, which leads to some odd moments with others, actually. Mm-hmm. Ale may feel emotions deeply, John, but he's he's not always at his best when he's in emotional turmoil. <laughs> so we're going to have to see how he handles all of this. Right. right. And um, that maybe befits a possibly trollish, possible berserk. It does, yeah. Or maybe someone who's just been through a, a great personal loss, but but also the physical and emotional exhaustion of a multi-day battle. Now, speaking of which, uh, before we go, I just want to return us to the battlefield for a moment. Uh, Okay, yeah, that sounded a bit dramatic, but uh, go ahead. Well, I want to talk about the way this battle unfolds, uh, especially toward the end of the first day of fighting. Okay, yeah, this is when Thorolf had just uh, had his moment of berserk rage to turn Mm -hmm. the tide of the battle. And the Scott Grimson's men have turned back the northern assault for the day. Exactly. Now, we're just not used to seeing battles like this in the sagas. No, uh, definitely most not. fights are duels or brawls between a few men or at mm-hmm. most a few dozen men on each side. 
right? Yeah. Not this, not full scale warfare with with unit commanders and standards and legit military maneuvers. Oh, definitely not. And and you don't see that in most, I'd say, early medieval literature. Absolutely, um, at all. Yep. Um, even even somewhat later medieval literature, not in the literature, maybe in other texts, but not not That's in right. poetry and and prose of the era. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they do happen, uh, like uh, in the Battle of Clontarf and Yalsaga, yes. there, there's not a lot of detail about things like troop movements. No. Uh, the battles are described according to individual anecdotes. Remember that story about different men picking up the battle standard and being killed, mm-hmm. and then the third man being told to pick it up, and everyone around him yelling, like, don't do it! Don't <laughs> touch that battle standard! Don't touch standard. that thing! Right, this is different. We're getting full battle reports with troop movements and a very clear sense of space. Oh, yeah. You could easily map this whole thing out. Absolutely. Uh, And the sequence of events, right? Complicated troop movement, a constant pouring of men into the crucible of the battlefield, destroyed units being cycled back or reshuffled into reinforcing groups. It starts to feel like battle reports I've read of the American Civil War. Oh, because you spend your free time reading Civil War battle reports. Yes, Uh, of course you do. No, 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 no. I, I took an amazing course at Queensborough Community College with this great professor, John Gornichelli, on military history, and he taught me how to read battle reports. Uh, okay. And, and this is one. Uh, in a few superficial ways, it plays out similarly to First Manassas uh, with the does Anglo-Saxons really? as the con- – Yeah, it does actually. With the Anglo-Saxons sort of on the Confederate side and the Scott Grimson standing in for Stonewall Jackson. Uh, but more generally, it reads like a highly credible description of a not very well-organized battle uh, between two sides who are still moving pieces into place, even as the battle is being won and lost. Okay, but you realize that that kind of sounds like you're saying this is an accurate description of the Battle of Brunenburg. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, no, 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 I don't mean that. Uh, I don't mean that at all. Uh, I mean that this author, whether it's Snorri Sturluson or somebody else, has a very clear idea about how this kind of a battle works and how to describe it afterward. Right? I- I've been trying mm-hmm. to use some of what Dr. Guarnaschelli taught me to think about the troop movements in this section of the saga. And the more I did, the more the story came into focus for me. Yeah, it's it's organized chaos or disorganized chaos because that's what chaos yeah, disorganized, is. Yeah, disorganized, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but with leaders wrestling against the rush of events to force things toward their desired outcome, right? And that was one of the mm-hmm. things Dr. Warnishelli used to say, that, you know, that, that you're watching people in real time trying to sort of arc things toward their desired outcome. Uh, but my point is that it's a different register of writing than we usually see in the family sagas. Yeah, it's a good point. In many ways, this is more like what you'd find in the contemporary sagas, so where you have an eyewitness <laughs> or – or- Direct witnesses. Yeah, I, I should have known you'd see that one was coming. Yes, well, that's yeah, where, I mean, that's where I was there going. Are, <laughs> there definitely are descriptions of full battles in the contemporary sagas, the Samti the Sogar, um, mm-hmm. and and sometimes in chronicle literature as well. And it sounds more like mm-hmm. what we're seeing here, right? And you know, as you were suggesting earlier, this is it's mostly later medieval writing where you can find that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, now this part of the saga has a lot going on, and the battle report feel of it is only one part. Uh, uh, and actually, you know, one other thing that you can take away from this is that when you do read it as a battle report, it's pretty clear that the Viking mercenaries are being used as cannon fodder. Mm. Uh, do they know so, that? So are the Northumbrians for that matter, right? Which is not con- surprising when you consider that they're mostly people from the Dane law in any case. Yeah. The, the North-South divide in the 10th century Britain is uh, – yeah, the North-South – yeah, the North-South divide in 10th century Britain is a whole subject in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as we're talking about this – there's another interesting element of the Brunnenberg battle as it plays out in the saga that we should talk about. Well, I mean, there's a lot, but okay. Yeah, but well, how about the focus on Icelanders? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that's a thing. 
Yeah, so in the English account of the battle, there's... Uh, uh, account is a strong word. It's a poem. It's a poem in a chronicle, therefore... Well, must sure be. it is. I'm not sure that <laughs> negates my point. Yeah. All right, accounts, plural, if that makes you feel any better. Uh, <laughs> the emphasis in English versions of the story is that the Anglo-Saxon forces, led by Athelstan and his brother Edmund, defeated mm-hmm. a combined force of Scots, Celts, and Danes, along with Viking mercenaries. Right. So there's no reference at all to mercenaries on the Anglo-Saxon side of the field. Oh, most definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Really, we could take the first lines of the poetic account in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as crediting Athelstan and his brother almost single-handedly with the victory. Um, I, I have it right here. I'm going to... John, how about I read the, uh, the Old English just for fun and uh, you translate for us as we go. Do you want me to do line by line or just wait until you're done? Yeah, let's do line by line. Is all that right. okay? Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, as I read the Old English, some of the words you'll you'll recognize, uh, and then John will help confirm that you you know some of those words. <laughs> so here we go. It begins, Herr Avelstand Kuning, Erla Drüchten. So here, Athelstan the king, a lord of men. Beorna Beachifa, and his brother Each. The bestower of rings, and also his brother. Eadmund Atheling, Eadorlangdetir. So Edmund the Prince, that's the brother from the previous line. Edmund the Prince mm-hmm. won glory eternal. Yes, Loganatsache, Swerdorechum. They slew with their blades of their swords in battle. Umbe Brunenburg, Bordwer Kluvan. At Brunenburg. <laughs> uh, they, they broke the shield wall. So here, King Athelstan, Lord of Men, the ring bestower, and his brother also, Edmund the Prince. Won eternal glory with the blades of their swords in battle at Brunenburg. Mm. They split the shield wall and did all kinds of other cool stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there are a few lines later in the poem that I think admit that the two of them weren't alone on the English side. But uh, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's definitely it's, it's a proto-nationalist piece of writing. Uh, oh, definitely. I mean, to use 21st century concepts. Uh, but it's it, it means presenting an English victory forged from a national identity. Right? That it's, mm, it's exactly. Englishmen winning for England. Exactly. And if you were to introduce uh, Viking mercenaries into the English side, that would completely undercut that sense of a noble cause. The rightful owners mm-hmm. of the island beating back a coalition in which non-natives are significant contributors, that, that just doesn't work. This, this could get us started on a whole different conversation about how the Danes of the Dane law were perceived in 10th century England. Yeah, I, I think we should explain for those unfamiliar what the Dane law is. I mean, okay. Uh, God forbid our briefly, listeners didn't know that. The Dane law was a commonwealth area of control that was established in what's now Northern and Eastern England. Yeah. It was founded as part of the peace agreement between the Vikings of the great heathen army and King Alfred, the mm-hmm. great, who was yeah. Athelstan's grandfather. <laughs> uh, the point is that it's a semi-autonomous kingdom sharing the island with Athelstan's England. And there's a permeability to that border. Right. People live along it, marry across it, and so on. It's not its not like a real sort of national border the way we would think of a modern national border. Right. Uh, the majority of people alive in Britain in 937 are used to a politically split island, right? That's just kind of part of how they live. Even those who are old enough to remember the Seven Kingdom Anglo-Saxon Heptarchy wouldn't have remembered it as a time of political unity, right? So it's not as if there's yeah. a, a unified past that they're looking back to in 937. Yeah, which only goes to show that the poetry's silence about the presence of Danes and Norsemen is a decision being made by the writers. Sure, that makes sense, yeah. Um, Now, obviously, we can go more deeply into this in our upcoming saga brief on Brunenburg, 
Yeah. But for now, I think we should leave Ale to grieve for his lost brother as he contemplates his next move. Yes. This really does mark the end of the second act of the saga. Uh, next time, we'll deal with the fallout from Thorolf's death and move into Ale's life as a lone warrior along with some developments in his personal life. But we've been talking for a while, so uh, why don't we wrap this up for now? Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we go, John, I, I have one one comment from the listener rune sack that I, I'd like to share with you, if that's all right. All right. We'll open her up. All righty. So this comment comes from Julius Adam Huckabee, who was writing to us about, uh, you, do you remember the sack on Lund? Ale and Thorolf went to Lund and uh, yep, sacked absolutely. it and killed mm-hmm. men against well, the, the city walls. Thorolf, and then, Thorolf, uh, oh, that's right. Right. Thorolf was Thorolf, hanging out Thorolf with that uh, other Viking lord. Yeah, right. That's right, yeah. So anyway, uh, Julius Adam Huckabee, guess where he lives, John? Uh, Lund? He does, <laughs> as a matter of fact. So he writes, Hi, guys. First off, I love your podcast. It's a great resource for folks like me who have an interest in Norse studies from undergrad days. Duke class of 05. <laughs> and uh, and we like to stay polished on a longtime hobby, such as the sagas. In episode 29G, Ale Saga Part 7. This wow, is very this is very official. Yeah, we have very complicated naming patterns in our podcast. <laughs> uh, he, he references the digression on the you know Clamor of Spears thing where we talk about the Lund stuff, right? Um, he says, I happen to have moved to the Swedish city of Lund uh, in 2014. And when I reread Ale Saga last year, a mention of Ale's visit didn't escape my attention. <laughs> Curious as to whether I was in fact reading about my new hometown... I looked into the matter. I'll venture that this is yet another anachronism in the saga. So, John, do you remember we were talking about anachronisms uh, yes. throughout there, right? Um, so, Julius is suggesting that this is yet another anachronism that's mm. quite interesting. The consensus belief seems to be that Lund was founded in 990. Now, remember, we're... Well, that's we awkward. Are, <laughs> yes, very awkward. We're at, uh, if we're doing uh, uh, the Battle of Brunnenberg right now, we're mm-hmm. in 937. Right. But we know we're supposed to be slightly earlier than that in terms of the saga's narrative. Well, except that um, we've also said that uh, when they're in Sweden, they're probably in the 950s. Exactly. Uh, because of what's so going on with the kings then. Right. And this is exactly what Julius is getting to, mm-hmm. which is quite brilliant and uh, new to me, and I thought I would share it with you. The consensus belief seems to be that Lund was founded in 990 by the order of King Swain Forkbeard, son of Harold Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. Lund's location provided a much better geographical defense um, than its predecessor as the dominant commercial and religious center of southwest Skåne. Upakra, located about five kilometers south of present-day Lund. So archaeological evidence shows that Upakra burned down or was burned down in the late 10th century. Mm Hmm. That's quite significant, right? Isn't it? It's It still exists, uh, but is nowadays relatively unknown versus Lund. Mm-hmm. So he concludes, obviously, Eil couldn't have been the one who sacked Upakra. Am I wrong in assuming that the Lund in Eil saga and Upakra were meant to be the same? Did the saga author deliberately add this episode in order to tie Eil to yet another major Nordic event? Because by the 11th century, Lund was a major center of Christendom in Scandinavia that the saga right. author would have been aware of. Well, that brings up a really interesting concept, the possibility that for a 13th century writer, Lund was not founded in 990, but perhaps rebuilt. Yeah. Right. That that uh, this Upakra that was destroyed um, in the 13th century is thought of as being kind of a first iteration of Lund mm-hmm. uh, rather than being a separate entity of its own. That's right. And so that 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 Upakra kind of exists as a small kind of yeah. settlement that's kind of rebuilt on the ashes, but Lund is what 
Ubakura was supposed to be. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, and right. and to answer the That's question, is the saga author deliberately adding this episode to tie Ale to another major Nordic event? Um, to a couple then, of guys living in <laughs> North America right. in the 21st century, um, I would say I had no idea that that story even existed. But now that you present it uh, <laughs> succinctly That's, and beautifully as you did, I'd say yeah, I'd say quite plausible, eminently plausible. Yeah. Um, we're going to give this a Mythbusters plausible. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, we've already seen that the saga author is willing to play with history, right. play with chronology in order to put his saga characters at important moments in Norse history. So, yeah, yeah I like it. I like yeah. it a lot. No, he's pretty casually drawing in events from all over the 10th century at this point. And so, and again, especially if uh, in the mind of a 13th century writer, Lund and Uppakra were actually uh, sort of variations of the same place. Uh, or whether it's sort of narratively convenient to think of them that way, uh, it makes perfect sense that you'd be trying to tie that in. Absolutely. So Julius Huckabee, thank you very much. Well done. Uh, we, we agree with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andy, I also have a small comment to make. Uh, before is that we, so? Is that, yes, it is. Uh, I think uh, we said earlier, we teased earlier that we might mention at the end of the episode uh, who uh, we're going to be speaking with for our special saga brief on the Battle of Brunenborough. Well, who are we going to be speaking with? Some kind of uh, brilliant experts? Well, I'm very, I'm very happy to be able to say uh, that um, you know, those of you who have listened to this show from the beginning or even just caught our mentions of it on a regular basis, but we have an oft-repeated anecdote that we uh, hatched the original idea for this podcast because of a podcast called Rex Factor. Uh, That's and correct. over the years, we've we've been in contact with the guys from Rex Factor here and there, and they've always been tremendously supportive of what we're trying to do uh, and have been sort of really gracious about the fact that we essentially uh, rob them of a lot of their format. Uh, and uh, so for this special episode, when the worlds of the sagas and English royal history uh, collide, we thought, what better time to bring the Rex Factor guys on board? Uh, and oh, so absolutely. the saga brief coming up on the Battle of Brunenborough will feature myself, Andy, and Graham and Ollie from Rex Factor. Uh, That's right. Four people yeah, all the- jockeying for position on a podcast should be great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the plot for this was hatched about a year ago when uh, I traveled to England. Um, I, I was in London for about a day and a half or so, and uh, I met up with Graham at a pub and we, we, we chatted about what the potential future of our, our podcast might be. And uh, I said, I th- have a feeling we're going to be doing ale saga very soon. Would you be interested in maybe doing a Brunenberg episode with us? And right. uh, he graciously said, yes. So one year later, we're ready. <laughs> this is very exciting. I'm, I'm really it excited is. to talk to these two guys. Uh, and just to kind of, you know, just to, to have the two po- podcasts finally uh, meet and enjoy a drink together. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, all right. So, I, you know, John, I think we are now in danger of setting a record for longest episode of the podcast. And uh, that is not a record I was looking to break today. No, I don't know. I mean, we haven't really delved into the history of Ale's sword adder or what's going <laughs> oh, on. No, the no, 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 no. Although he does call it black adder in, in, in his poem, which I was <laughs> really struck by. Maybe we, will, we, do uh, want we to will definitely deal with that in a future episode. Uh, no, we won't. All right, but if you're so eager to totter off, I know you've got certain things to do today. Uh, why don't you uh, tell the nice folks how they can contact us if they want to tell us what we did wrong? <laughs> what we did wrong? What we did right? <laughs> you're right. Contact us to tell us what we did right because sometimes we do things well. 
All right. So if you want to reach us and maybe get featured in a future classic listener runesack bit, uh, you can drop us a line at our Facebook page where we are Saga Thing Podcast or on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod. Or you can reach us at our email address, Saga Thing Podcast at gmail.com. Andy, can you just declare something a classic before it happens? Is that is that allowed now? I'm giving it a try. All right. Uh, you can also send a message along with Alf Gear as he passes through your town on his endless retreat from Brunenborough. Uh, presumably, he'll eventually pass one of our houses as he uh, continues to run away. <laughs> run, Alf Gear, run! <laughs> He's out of the saga, but never out of our thoughts. That's right. <laughs> and as always, uh, thank you for the support and for playing along with this podcast. Uh, if you enjoy the show and you haven't yet done so, please rate us on your podcast listening app of choice. Uh, those positive reviews mean a ton to us, and as well as uh, maybe they'll entice some more people to give the sagas a try. Absolutely. We will be back soon with a special saga brief going into the literature and history of Brunenberg with our friends from Rex Factor. Um, I'm going to be heading... I'm going to be heading over to Ohio to uh, catch up with some old friends and family. Um, and when I get back, I will be uh, putting that episode together for us. So give me about uh, you know two weeks or so. And after that, we will return to Ale to see where the final third of his saga takes him. Until then, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Gotta get Wendy to save me from this cat. Meow. Can you hear it? Meow. Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. So, uh, um, can I just say, can I just say, the you, lady. Uh, as an aside, that the the smell yeah. of vomit in here is getting really overpowered. Oh no, that's <laughs> terrible! You're gonna have to clean between the cracks. Uh.